Acts 9, 1 to 19. All this time, Saul was breathing down the necks of the master's disciples, out for the kill. He went to the chief priests and got arrest warrants to take to the meeting places in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. He set off. When he got to the outskirts of Damascus, he was suddenly dazed by a blinding flash of light. As he fell to the ground, he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? He said, who are you, master? I am Jesus, the one you're hunting down. I want you to get up and enter the city. In the city, you'll be told what to do next. His companions stood there dumbstruck. They could hear the sound, but they couldn't see anyone. While Saul, picking himself up off the ground, found himself stone blind. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. He continued blind for three days. He ate nothing, drank nothing. There was a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias. The master spoke to him in a, vo in a vision. Ananias. Yes, master, he answered. Get up and go over to Straight Avenue. Ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's there praying. He has just had a dream in which he saw a man named Ananias enter the house and lay hands on him so he could see again. Ananias protested. Master, you can't be serious. Everyone's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing. His reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem. And now he's shown up here with papers from the chief priest that give him license to, the same, to do the same to us. But the master said, don't argue, go. I have picked him as my personal representative to the non-Jews and kings and Jews. And now I'm about to show him what he's in for, the hard suffering that goes with this job. So Ananias went and found the house and placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the master sent me, the same Jesus you saw on your way here, he sent me so you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got to his feet, was baptized, and sat down with them to a hearty meal. Well, thanks, uh, Laura, for reading that scripture passage for us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who is the author of the message translation, writes uh, autobiographically in his most recent book, which is entitled The Pastor, a memoir about his life and experiences. And he writes that his growing up years were littered with stories of remarkable transformation like that one, like Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. As an adolescent, Peterson observes, I envied the people who could tell stories of their dramatic conversions from lives of drink or drugs or assorted debaucheries. They were so much more interesting. I grew up in a church culture, he says, that made an art form out of Damascus Road stories. Whenever I heard the stories, and I heard them frequently, I felt so ordinary, so left out. Well, perhaps you share some of Peterson's feelings or experiences. Uh, personally, I came to faith in my early elementary aged years, and so uh, my limited exposure to illicit substances at that point in my life to that juncture uh, didn't make for a very dramatic conversion experience from those things at that point 
in time. And so I resonate with some of what Peterson says uh, to an extent. And his envy of people with interesting conversion experiences. And perhaps you do too. And that's why Paul's retelling of his story in Acts chapter 22 is so fascinating to me. It's fascinating for what he includes from the original experience in Acts chapter 9 and fascinating for what he leaves out. It's fascinating and intriguing to me what he emphasizes as he reflects back on his own experience and conversion on that uh, Damascus road. Well, we're almost at the end of our teaching series in the months of January and February in the second half of the book of Acts, uh, which has been titled, Now is the Time. And we've been exploring in the months of January and February how Paul, one of the earliest and most prominent Christian thinkers and leaders, how he shares his story and God's story with people that he encounters as he travels throughout the first century world. And part of the goal of this teaching series is for each of us to learn more effectively from Paul's strategies as to how to share God's story and how to share our stories with the people whom God places uh, in our lives. So when we left Paul last week, he was a man uh, who was headed uh, towards Jerusalem. He's towards the end of his life, and he's intent on assessing his mission and his purpose in life. And you'll remember in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he says, I have an inner compulsion from the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And I don't know what awaits me except that in city after city, there'll be jail and there will be suffering that lie ahead for me. And so Paul understands his mission in life and he understands that this is not going to be an easy road for him as he moves Forward. And sure enough, he continues in his travels in Acts 21.4. He gets off the boat headed for Jerusalem in Syria. And the local believers meet him. And he stays there for a week. And there's a group of them that actually gets together. And God reveals to them uh, prophetically that Paul is going uh, to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to be captured. And so they say to him, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. And he keeps going. Gets back on the boat and goes again. Next stop is Caesarea. And there's a prophet there by the name of Agabus. And Agabus um, arrives, and maybe because, you know, the last people that haven't uh, got this through Paul's message, Agabus says, maybe we should do a little object lesson. So I need one of the youth to volunteer and come on up here for a minute. You will not be harmed or embarrassed in any way, I don't think. (sighs) Any willing volunteers? All right, Josh? Okay. I need you to just sit here for a minute up on the stage. And uh, Agabus, yep, you can just sit there, sit there and stick your, stick your kind of uh, arms out in front of you and kind of try and, and touch your toes like that. Okay, all right, just hold that for a minute. Stretch a little bit. This is not a flexibility exercise. All right, just move your arms a little closer to uh, there. Okay, I'm just going to just um, lift your legs up for a minute here with me. Okay, how do you think you could get your arms a little closer down there? Okay, that's perfect. Brilliant. Okay. All right, you're very trusting. I appreciate that. Okay, all right. So Agabus grabs Paul's belt, because maybe Paul hasn't got the message yet, grabs Paul's belt. I felt it might be a little inappropriate to take my own belt off, just just, so I brought an extra. Grabs Paul's uh, Paul's belt off him, ties his hands and his feet like this, and says, 
this is going to happen to you if you keep going to Jerusalem, Paul, in case you have not got the message yet. You're going to be bound and you're going to be turned over by the Jews to the Gentiles. It's going to be a really bad scene. Okay. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. Let's give Josh a hand. So Paul still politely says, thank you very much, uh, but I am still going to keep going. Paul's friends get in touch with him. They beg him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul, I love Paul's answer to them. In chapter 21, he says, why are you crying? What is the big deal here? Uh, I am ready, he says, not only to be jailed in Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. So he keeps going, even though all of these people have clearly spoken to him, and this is actually the Holy Spirit speaking through these people, it says in Acts chapter 21. So we kind of have to ask the question, and I want you to hold it in your mind while we keep reading. Was God trying to tell Paul something? Or another way of asking this question is, what is the relationship between what Paul wants to do, which is keep going to Jerusalem, and what God wants Paul to do? We're going to come back to that question later on because it's a question that each of us should wrestle with at some point in our life. What's the relationship between what I want to do and what God wants me to do? So we'll hold that in your mind and we'll come back to it. Well, finally, Paul gets to Jerusalem And he meets with James, he meets with the elders and the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and he gives a little uh, missions update and testimony about his travels. He shares with them the powerful stories of transformation and mission that God is doing all throughout the Gentile world, and they are excited about what's happening. But they're also just a little bit concerned because uh, some negative news has gotten back to headquarters in Jerusalem that this guy Paul was a little bit of trouble. So the Jews in Jerusalem had been told by other people that Paul was telling everybody that they should just get rid of all of their history and customs and experiences as Jews and that they should totally uh, step away from all of that and get involved with this new thing called the Way, which is the early start of the Christian movement. And Paul wasn't actually doing that. He'd been to Jerusalem before. He'd had this conversation with the leaders, and so they remind him of the things that he told them uh, that they agreed on. And he said, yeah, yeah, I did all that. Yeah, I talked to them about all those things. And they said, well, the problem, though, Paul, is that perception has created a reality for us. And so here in Jerusalem, this is what people think. Even though you're telling us it's not true, and we totally believe you, and we're so excited about what God is doing, but here, this is going to be a little bit of a problem. So what should we do about this? Well, they come up with a plan that uh, he's going to go to the temple, the center of Jewish religious observance and tradition, and he is going to engage in a Jewish religious observance. He's going to go and get his head ritually shaved. And so this, uh, they suggested that this was something so Jewish, he should do something so Jewish that nobody could argue with the fact that he didn't have respect for Jewish customs. And so it would be similar um, to what we might suggest if someone challenged Pastor Keith's Canadianness, and he said, all right, fine, I will prove it to you right here and right now. Bring me the maple syrup, and I will wear a Canucks jersey. 
which would be a big deal for him, a really big deal for him. And so it's this sort of public gesture, like, fine, you want me to prove that I'm affiliated with this group? I will, I will do what it takes. So Paul does this. He goes to the temple, and this is where things get really ugly. Some Jews from Asia, where Paul has been traveling, they see Paul, and they flip out. They totally lose it, because earlier that day, they saw him with a non-Jew, and he's now in the temple in the section where only Jews are supposed to be. And they assume that he brought this guy with him into the temple. And so he has created a scene. He has decimated and destroyed the holiness of the most holy site in Jewish culture and tradition. And so they start to yell and scream and freak out. And they start to get all these other people with them and say, this guy is trouble. We got to get rid of him. Can you believe he's doing it? All over the world he's been causing trouble. And the mob scene starts to very quickly emerge. And the mob is so hungry for Paul's life that they start to beat him. And they're so intent and so crazy that it creates an uproar big enough that it catches the eye of the Roman garrison and the army that's stationed there. So the mob is so frenzied that the army has to come in and drag Paul away from these people. And as they drag him out of the mob, who is hungry for his life, bruised and bloody, Paul says to the army centurion who's in charge, oh, hey, I just have one request. Can I speak to the crowd for a minute? It looks fairly sanitized in these Sunday school pictures. I mean, you get a little bit of the idea, but like, you know, it's probably a little crazier than this picture would let on. Now think of this for a minute. We've traveled with Paul all through the ancient world, and we've listened to him speak. He's spoken to highly educated people, governors and those in authority. He's spoken with philosophers and religious educators. He's spoken with Jews and non-Jews who are known as Gentiles. He's spoken with small groups. He's spoken with large crowds. He's spoken with women, people from all different backgrounds. Uh, but this crowd is a uniquely hot and bothered crowd. They have it in for his life. And they didn't come to hear a nice lecture on the way of Jesus. They came to kill him. And he wants to speak with them? And the commander of the, of the Roman garrison, I'm sure not quite sure what else to say, says, um, okay, <laughs> we could try that. So in chapter 22, verse 1, Paul begins to share his story. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Not all the verses are going to come up on the screen, so grab your Bibles or your smartphone and follow along uh, on version or whatever software that you have uh, there. I'm going to read from uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 1, and when we get to verse 3, the first verse will come up for you. So Paul begins his defense, and he says, Brothers and esteemed fathers. I'm not sure I would call a group of people like that that just tried to kill me, but that's how he begins his defense. Listen to me as I offer my defense. And when they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. They may have assumed he was an outsider, come to cause trouble, but he knows the local dialect, and so he speaks in Aramaic. Then Paul says, you want to know my history? I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus, a city in Sicilia, and I was born up and educated right here in this city under Gamaliel who was one of the leading rabbis of his day. 
As his student, Paul says, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. And I became so zealous, very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you are today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some of them to death, arresting both men and women, and I threw them in prison. The high priest, the whole council of elders here, they can testify this is so because I've received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus authorizing me to bring the Christians from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. Look how hard Paul works to identify with his listeners and their story and their experiences. Danny taught us last Sunday evening at Pragmatics about a three-story evangelism. And the heart behind three-story evangelism or conversations is that in any dialogue that you have with someone, there's three stories that are going on and intersecting, hopefully. One is God's story. What has God been doing? What is your story? What are your experiences, your history, and your life circumstances have to bear upon this particular conversation? And the third story is the story of the person with whom you are speaking. And so one of the things that Danny reminded us about was doing the hard work of learning to listen and identify very carefully and deeply with anyone whom you are in conversation with. It's called being a good friend. And that is what Paul is up to here in this conversation, and he's very good at it. He's emphasizing his connection points with his audience over and over again. He traces his own formative years and experiences, his birth, his rearing, and his education to convince a crowd that wanted to kill him that he's actually very respectful of their traditions. He invites them to check his credentials. He says, in in essence, you want to know who used to write my T4? It was the Jewish leadership. I was their employee. It was the high priests who who gave me this authority to go to Damascus and do all of these things. The whole council of elders here in Jerusalem. It's as if he's saying to the crowd there, would somebody who grew up in Jerusalem like me defile the temple? No. I wouldn't even think about it. Would somebody who studied under the leading rabbinical scholar right here in Jerusalem. Gamaliel, you guys know this guy. He's awesome. If I studied under him and was a good student, would I do this crazy stuff that you're accusing me of doing? No, I wouldn't do that. Would somebody as zealous for God, as my resume indicates, would I bring a non-Jew into the inner courts in the temple to defile them? No, I wouldn't do anything so stupid. See, Paul knows their story and the things that are important to them. And so he works very hard to try and identify with their story and try and help them understand that there are connection points with his own story and experiences. Which makes me wonder and think, how well do I know the story of people around me? How well do you know the stories of people around you? Do you know their background? Do you know where they grew up? 
where they went to school, what they do for a living? Do you know about their religious convictions, if they have any? If they're Muslims, as an example, do you know, are they a Sunni Muslim, a Shiite Muslim? What are, what's their history? Can we really say that we love our neighbors if we don't know them? See, our love for our neighbors will grow and deepen as our relationships with our neighbors and our friends and family grow and deepen. And so finding out their stories and listening and learning to love them is just being a good friend. And as you engage in the process of reflection and hearing their stories, one of the questions that you want to ask yourself is, are there similarities or connection points between your story and between their story in some way? And if there are, there might be shared experiences there which you can appeal to, to develop and deepen that love and that connection and that experience. Do they have hobbies that you enjoy? Do they have a history that maybe mirrors yours in some way, culturally or otherwise. God has placed them in your path for a reason. And so getting to know their stories is just part of what God has called us to do. And so Paul does this exceptionally well and models for us how to do this as he speaks with this crowd. But he doesn't simply identify their story. He also emphasizes God's story. And he emphasizes God's work in his life that overlap of those two circles of God's story and Paul's story. So follow along in your Bible as we continue reading. And I want you to listen for the supernatural elements in that intersection point between God's story and Paul's story. As we keep reading in verse 6. As I was on the road approaching Damascus at noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? I'm not sure it had background music to accompany it, but, you know, who knows? Who are you, Lord? I asked. He didn't know. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the one you were persecuting. The risen Savior, risen Jesus, appears to Paul in this vision on the road to Damascus. And it's not an individual vision. The people around with me, he says, saw the light but did not understand the voice speaking to me. And I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up, go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light, and I had to be led by the hand of Damascus by my companions, and a man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man. He was deeply devoted to the law saying this for the benefit of his audience. He doesn't mention that in Acts chapter 9. And he was well regarded by all of the Jews of Damascus. It's as if he's saying, you want to ask him? Go ask him. Ask him if my story is true. And he came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And at that very moment, I could see him. And then he told me, Ananias told me, because God had given Ananias a message for Paul about his mission. Ananias told me, Paul says, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will 
to see the righteous one and to hear him speak. For you will be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. As an expression of that, your inward transformation, have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. Paul's life is a whole series of supernatural events. If you read through the book of Acts and follow his journey, from his Damascus Road conversion, of being healed of blindness, to instance after instance where God clearly speaks to him about something, um, saying, Paul, I want you to go here, or Paul, don't go here, uh, to his miraculous release from prison that we looked at, used by God in miraculous ways to do signs and wonders to point unbelieving people to faith. Paul's life is just a series of one miraculous event after another. Which got me thinking about that intersection in my own life between my story and God's story. And got me asking how well I know my own story And it's interesting to me that we live in a day and time where the supernatural is fair game for conversation with people, particularly personal experiences of interaction with the supernatural in powerful ways. And so one of the questions that it might be worth asking, instead of trying to find something sensational about your conversion experience, one of the questions that you might want to ask is, do you have any moments in your story, in your experience, where God met you in a powerful way. Where are the supernatural moments in your own story? May not have been around your conversion, may have been subsequent to that, may have been prior to that. Where are those times in your story that God has revealed himself to you in incredible and inexplicable ways? Do you have instances in your story of divine guidance or protection. Instances where you felt very close to God and you felt that you heard God whispering something to you in your life in some way. This plays significantly in my own story, in my own journey to this point and why we're actually here in Langley. In 1995, I was traveling around visiting friends and decided to visit, uh, stop in and visit a friend at Trinity Western. And they were rooming in the big pink building uh, that faced the freeway, Northwest Baptist College. And so I went for a visit. And as I walked into that building, I felt a very clear expression in my heart of God saying to me, this is where I want you for the next four years. Now, This was in the spring. I had already enrolled in the U of T for the fall semester. I I had a whole different set of plans. And so I I thought, well, that's interesting. And I let that go. Didn't think any more about it. Didn't think a lot about it. Went through the spring, went into the summer. Couldn't shake that experience, though, and thought, you know what? I should probably at least do something about it. So I called and inquired. And what I understood God to be saying to me at that time is, this is where I want you for the next four years seems like there might be a degree program that I should at least call and ask about. I didn't know the Bible colleges would take anybody at any time as long as you have any money that you know, can pay your tuition. 
So uh, I thought, well, the tuition deadline's passed it. There's no sense in even applying. I'll just get God off my back and call. Well, they said, sure. I called in August, and they said, sure, when you, can you come? I said, well, when does it start? They said, on oh, two and a half weeks. And so I packed up my car, drove across the country, and ended up on the campus at Northwest because God had spoken to me that I couldn't deny it. This is where I want you for the next four years. And I knew that God was whispering to me. So I abandoned my plans and moved to Langley, ended up meeting and marrying Meg, ended up completing all of my education here in Langley and uh, being on the staff at two amazing faith communities here in Langley over the last dozen and a bit years. And all of these things came into my life because of a supernatural experience, because of a divine whisper in my life. And perhaps your story has been shaped by something powerful like that. A supernatural moment in your own life experience. If so, the question I have for you is, what is your comfort level and skill level in sharing these experiences with others? What is your comfort and skill level in sharing these with others? Maybe for some of you, the skill level uh, needs a little bit of honing because when you share them, You do it in a way that people that aren't familiar or comfortable with an experience with God get a little bit weirded out by it or freaked out by it. Just learn to talk about it in a way that's a little bit more normal for them. Maybe for you it's a fear factor and you need to get a little bit more comfortable of saying, you know, this is where I've seen God at work in my life and in the experiences and just grow more comfortable with sharing those experiences with others instead of shying away from them and downplaying them. You may not have had a Damascus Road conversion experience, but you may have had divine encounters with God's grace and God's power that are just as worth the telling. So know your story. Step up. Get comfortable with it. Get comfortable with sharing it a little bit more today. And you may be here today and you may say, well, Brad, I don't feel like I have ever had a divine encounter with God. I don't feel like I connect with what you're saying about at all. Well, if that's you, I would challenge you today to pray a simple prayer. Say, God, would you please reveal yourself to me? If you're in a place where you say, I don't know, uh, I'm a little bit curious about this whole Jesus business, but I don't, I don't know about any of this stuff. I don't know if I want to take any next steps in that. Pray that prayer. See what God will do. Thousands upon thousands of people have prayed that prayer at times in their life and say, God, would you please reveal yourself to me? And it's amazing to me how God will honor that request for those who genuinely are seeking him. Wait and watch and see what he does. I would not be surprised at all if God meets you in a supernatural way. Paul certainly met God in that way. Paul certainly continuously encountered God in that way. Not in a way that Paul feels like he needs to manipulate God to make God show up in supernatural ways. It just becomes a normative part of Paul's experience. And he continues to have supernatural experiences in his life. Look at Acts chapter 22, verse 17. So he has his Damascus Road experience. After that, he goes down to Jerusalem. And in verse 17, he says, I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance. Another supernatural experience. And in this trance, I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here will not accept your testimony about me. And Paul argues with Jesus in his vision. 
But Lord, I, I, I argued, they certainly know in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And I was in complete agreement when your witness Stephen was stoned and was killed right here in this city. I mean, I stood by. I kept the coats that they took off when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And before we get to the response of the crowd, I want you to go back to that question that you held in your mind from earlier. Why do you think with all of the warnings, with all of the danger and the hardships that would face him, Paul would keep going towards Jerusalem? Is he an idiot? Is he just too stubborn for his own good? Well, what's going on here? Well, one thing that we need to wrestle with is this vision that Paul has of Jesus giving him his mission. You see, Paul, as a person, is uniquely trained and equipped. He's deeply, deeply familiar with and steeped in Jewish laws and customs. Here's a man who was employed by the Jewish leadership of his day to persecute Christians. And his conversion experience, after his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, he says to himself, this is perfect. I know what I'm going to do with my life. I am going to become a missionary to my own people. I mean, who better to give witness to God's story than someone who knows the story of the Jews like I do? And not only that, but they know my story. They know my history. This is going to be awesome um, because they know how zealous I was. I was in every synagogue, he says, dragging people away to jail who believed in Jesus. So if I go back to Jesus, uh, back to these synagogues, Paul's thinking and says, and I say to these people in these synagogues, remember me, I'm the guy that used to drag these people out that believed in Jesus. Now I'm the one who believes in Jesus. This is going to be like an awesome testimony experience for people. They will see my change of heart. Just think of how impressed that they'll be. It's going to be great. This is going to be like the whole mission of my life now, going into all these synagogues and talking to people about Jesus. They know how I helped kill Stephen. And they're going to say to themselves, wow, this is amazing. I mean, we want to know more about this. You should tell us, Paul, what happened to you? And that would be so awesome. Except that there was one teensy-weensy little problem with it. That this was not God's plan. This was Paul's plan. And there was a conflict between God's will and what God had in his mind and his heart and Paul's will and what Paul had in his mind and his heart. And see, Paul's ambition and his heart and his passion in his early Christian experience was to share with his fellow countrymen, his fellow people, Israel. But this wasn't what God had called Paul to do. If you go back to Acts chapter 9 and you look at what Ananias had been given to tell Paul, when he lays his hands on him so he can receive his sight, God tells Ananias specifically, this man, Paul, he is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, and to kings, as well as to my people, Israel. Paul's passion, his history, his ambition, Everything in his life seems to set him up initially for a ministry to the Jewish people. But when he heads to Jerusalem to confirm and test this, he is, a God appears to him in a vision 
and gives him a specific directive that is the opposite of his passions and his personal ambition. So what do you do when there's conflict between my personal ambition and God's guidance, when there's a tug-of-war between God's will and my will? Well, there's a lot that could be said about that, but perhaps one of the first things that we see in Paul's life is that just because something seems like a natural fit or a good idea or just because I want to do something does not mean that it's God's will. It might mean that it's God's will, but it might also mean that it's not God's will, which is what makes it tricky. In Acts chapter 6, uh, we see, 16 rather, we see that Paul wants to go to Asia, but the Spirit of God prevents him from going there. Paul has all kinds of thoughts in his life and in his mind and in his experience. Not all of them are God's will for him. And I don't know what your experience is like in these matters, but I know in my life it's great to dream and to plan, but so often what happens is my human nature begins to cloud my thinking and ambitions and desires. Have you found this to be true in your own life? Your ambition might be, well, I want to make a lot of money. And you might tell yourself, I want to make a lot of money in my life so that I could be able to give lots of money away to good causes and people who need it. But sometimes that ambition gets a little cloudy and murky. And sometimes we start out with best intentions and we end up keeping more and more of it for ourselves. Or maybe you're trained in counseling and caregiving and peer helping. And your ambition in life and your wiring is to help other people. But sometimes, sometimes that ambition can get a little bit cloudy and murky. So really, I want to help other people so that I can boost my own ego, so that other people will look at me and think, oh, wow, you are a great person. Such wisdom and insight and such compassion for others can be tricky. Your ambition in life might be uh, to raise your kids to be well-balanced, contributing members of society. Not a bad ambition. But sometimes along the way, that ambition can get a little bit cloudy. So we want our kids to succeed and make up for deficiencies in our own lives. We've all likely met parents who are living vicariously through their children. Sometimes you might meet them when you look in the mirror in the morning. So Paul understands that his ambition, just because he's passionate about something, doesn't mean that it's going to always be the right thing for him to do. Paul understands just because he wants to do something doesn't make it a good idea. And one of the things that you'll want to know well about your own story is this. Where have your passions and your ambitions and your plans been reshaped in some way? Because for me, I think about the plans that I had to go to university. I was going to get a degree in communications and get a well-paying job and get a big house and 2.5 kids and a dog and a white picket fence in suburban Toronto because I thought, well, God's given me some modicum of gift in talking, so I might as well put that to good use in some way. But God wanted to reshape that in some significant ways, and my plans and ambitions and redirect them for his purposes and glory. In Paul's life, God wanted him to go to the Gentiles, even though he felt like he was uniquely suited for ministry among the Jews. And in Acts chapter 9, we see that in addition to this vision, 
Paul had the community of faith around him to discern and help him figure out what God's will was for him. And so sometimes, like Paul's experience, God can reshape those dreams and ambitions in our hearts. Sometimes after that, Paul goes to the community and says, hey, what do you people think? And the community says to him, you know what, Paul? I think it's going to be a rough road. I think perhaps you better honor the fact that God might be calling you somewhere else. And they send him up a little bit further north. And so the community helps to shape and discern God's will for Paul's life. Sometimes our ambitions and plans are best reshaped when we submit them to others around us whom we know and trust. And there's a lot more that could be said about that. But for now, I'll simply ask you this. What role does community play in your discernment and decision-making process? Do you simply barrel ahead with any ambition or plan that comes into your head simply because they seem like a good idea to you? Or have you spent time with others discerning and asking God to test and sift them and to see whether or not your will might align with God's will? Well, Paul certainly did. He was used to hearing God's voice in his life. He was used to hearing God speak to him. And he was used to and comfortable with God allowing his story and the story of the people with whom he was in conversation to inform the way that conversation went. I'm going to put up that last slide, Mike, on that. The, that circle stories again. I want to ask us this morning, where might God have moved in your life, in your past, or in your recent history, even this last week maybe, that he wants you to be more aware of and more vocal about sharing. Maybe it doesn't seem like something significant to you, but it might just be that story which brings hope to someone who else who's struggling in that area. Where has God uniquely gifted and equipped you to listen to the people that he's placed in circles around you at work and in home? How well do you know your neighbor's story? How well do you know the story and the concerns of those in your life group or here at Jericho in your faith community? Maybe you need to take some steps to grow those relationships over time. Maybe for you, you need to get more comfortable and familiar with God's story and what he's doing. Part of that might be spending time reading the scriptures and understanding what it is, that how he speaks to us and how he shapes our desires and our passions and our plans. I want to pray for you as you begin to reflect and discuss these things and uh, members of our pastoral team will be available for you to talk and pray with you afterwards if you want to process these things further. And as we conclude our time uh, today, I want to ask Jared and the team if they would come up and we'll sing uh, what the Lord has done in me as a song of response. To ask again that question that Jared so wisely put to us as we started our time this morning. What is it that God has done in your life that he might want to use to powerfully shape and influence those around you. Let's pray together.
as we respond. God, I thank you for your incredible story of how you reached down through history and redeemed a man named Paul. How you called him for your purposes and your plans in his life. How you reshaped his ambitions, his desires, his hopes, and his dreams. And you gave him everything he needed for the tasks that you assigned to him. And God, I thank you that you're still doing that today. I think about the stories and experiences that I know of people here in Jericho who could give witness and testimony to what God has done in their lives. Father, I pray for courage and for boldness to us to speak those stories of your work and your witness in our lives to those who are around us. We want to be faithful to that, God. We want to be ambassadors of the mission that you have called us to of declaring and giving you worship and praise and honoring you for the way in which you have worked in our lives. And so we do that by reflecting, but also by celebrating Jesus. And so as we sing, would you bring these things to mind, God, in our, in our hearts and in our minds that you want us to give a declaration of, and we will respond in worship. In the name of Jesus, your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing this song of sending. Let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Let the blind say I what the Lord has done in me. Let the weak say, let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Let the blind say I can see. To what the Lord has done in me. Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lamb that was slain. Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus died and rose again. To the river, to the river, I will. My sins are washed away from the heaven's mercy seat of the Savior's love for me. Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lamb that was slain. Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus died. from waters deep into the saving arms of God I will sing salvation songs Jesus Christ has set me free 
Christ can bring. Be aware of him throughout your week, throughout your circumstances, and may those reminders of his presence in your life um, be launching pads into conversation with others about who he is and what he has done. Amen.